but it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is God's word. We're going to look at this passage in three parts which are the three different tests or temptations that Jesus encountered in the wilderness. So first, fleshly hunger, verses 1 to 4. Second, crossless glory, verses 5 to 8. And third, faithless testing, verses 9 to 13. And we'll unpack that as we go. So first, fleshly hunger. Now before diving into the details of fleshly hunger, let's first look at the immediate context of what's going on. So verse 1 to the beginning of verse 2, again say this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So after Jesus' baptism, where he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, affirmed by the Father to be his beloved Son, he is now full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness 40 days, where he was tempted by the devil for the entire 40 days. And now that we understand that, the obvious question is, why in the world would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Why would he do that? In the original language, the word for tempted here can be defined as either tempted or tested, depending on context. But even though the same Greek word can be used for both, to tempt and to test have very different meanings. To tempt is to entice someone to sin, but to test is to see the genuineness or the faithfulness of someone or something. For example, God tested the genuineness of Abraham's faith by his willingness to offer up his son Isaac. And God tested the faithfulness of Israel to his commandments during their 40 years in the wilderness. Satan and our own fleshly desires tempt us to sin. But God never tempts anyone to sin, nor can he be tempted. Rather, God tests the genuineness of our faith, and he tests our faithfulness to his commandments through trials. So in the case of the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness, both temptation and testing were occurring. Satan's purpose was to tempt the son to sin. But the Holy Spirit led Jesus there for the purpose of testing. You could say that God was testing the faithfulness of his son through the temptation of the devil. In other words, what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. To test and prove the faithfulness of his son. But what was this testing all about? Why go through all this trouble? What was at stake in this testing? In a sense, it was a testing that went all the way back to creation. Remember, the genealogy of Jesus came immediately before this passage, and it ended up tracing Jesus' roots back to Adam, the Son of God. So God tested Adam, the Son of God, in the garden in creation by giving him essentially just two commands. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If Adam obeyed, he would have proven himself to be a faithful son, and God would have declared him righteous and brought him into a glorified state to enjoy eternal life with him forever. But unfortunately, the first son of God, Adam, failed that test. He gave in to Satan's temptation and sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit, thus proving himself to be an unfaithful son. And he was expelled from the garden and from God's presence. But Adam wasn't the only son of God who failed his test. God called Israel his firstborn son when he delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. God then gave Israel the law so that his people would know how to live a life pleasing to him. And all his people swore to be faithful to him. We will do everything you told us to do. We swear. If Israel had obeyed, he he would have proven himself to be a faithful son and God would have continued to bless Israel in the land for all time. But unfortunately... You could call the entire history of Israel the fall part two, where the adopted son Israel continued to fail the test to be faithful to God that they swore to be faithful to. They continued to give in to temptation, and they continued to sin against God, thus proving themselves to be another unfaithful son. And so again, God expelled his son Israel from the land that he had given them and from his presence. 
And we should note that Jesus' 40 days of testing in the wilderness correspond with Israel's 40 years of testing in the wilderness. So in a sense, Jesus is reliving the testing of God's firstborn son, Israel. And in fact, every verse that Jesus quotes later on in this passage is from Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8, which is a section that recalls Israel's testing in the wilderness and all the lessons that they were supposed to have learned throughout that time. Okay, why am I explaining all of this? What's going on here is that Jesus, who has been anointed and affirmed as the Son of God in his baptism, is now undergoing the same test of faithfulness where so many other former sons have failed. So would Jesus finally succeed where all those former sons of God had failed? That's the question here. Would he prove to be the faithful Son of God that we've all been waiting for who would save us from all of our sins? Or would he prove himself to be another unfaithful son of God who would himself need saving from his own sin? That's what this testing was about. That's what was at stake in Jesus' testing here. Would Jesus be the faithful savior of our sins? Or would he just be another unfaithful sinner who would need saving himself? That's what this is all about. Now, let's look more closely at the first test of fleshly hunger. So the rest of verse 2 and verse 3 say this. And he, Jesus, ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. There are a couple things that we should notice here. First, Jesus is fully human. When he fasted, eating nothing for 40 days, it says he was hungry. And I think we all know that's a huge understatement. Our church just completed a two-week fast where I'm sure we all ate something whether vegetables or juices or smoothies or just one meal a day, we ate something. And even with that, some of us have experienced hunger like we've never experienced it before. So just think about Jesus not eating anything at all except perhaps drinking water for 40 days and just imagine how hungry he must have been. He wasn't just hungry. He was intensely hungry. And so Satan tempts him to command a stone to become bread so that he can eat something. Before going deeper into the nature of this temptation, we should also notice that though Jesus is fully human, he's not merely human. You know, how many of us would be tempted to command a stone to become bread? You know, how tempting would that be for us? No, probably not, not at all. Why is that? Because we know that that stone is not going to listen to us. It's going to remain a stone no matter how many times we try to command it to become bread. We know it's not going to work. It's not tempting for us. We know that we don't have the power to command a stone to become bread. In other words, the temptation is much more real and intense if you actually have the power to do it. So not only is Jesus fully human, but second, he's fully God. He has the divine ability to command that stone to become bread, and the stone must listen to him. So in his intense hunger, it was tempting for Jesus just for a moment to exercise his divine power to provide for himself and to satisfy the intense hunger pains that he must have been feeling. You know, Jesus knows that he's the son of God. His father in heaven had already affirmed that in his baptism. And Satan is not questioning whether Jesus is a son of God or not. He already knows that, and he wouldn't tempt Jesus to command a stone to become bread if he didn't already know that Jesus could do it. But Satan works from that assumption and tries to tempt Jesus to act apart from his father. The logic goes like this. Surely you are the son of God, and surely the son of God shouldn't be so intensely hungry like this. Therefore, you should satisfy your fleshly needs and desires. You know, on the surface, there might not seem like anything is wrong with that. Just like on the surface, there might not seem like anything was wrong with Adam eating a piece of fruit in the garden. But it's the same issue for Jesus in the wilderness as it was for Adam in the garden. God the Father did not tell his son to do that. God the Father did not tell his son to do that. He knew the voice of his father. He heard it from heaven in his baptism, and this was not the voice of his father. Satan was tempting Jesus to go beyond what his father had said to satisfy his personal needs. But Jesus would not do that. 
as he said elsewhere, I do as a father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. He obeyed the father no matter what, no matter how intensely hungry he was, no matter how legitimate his needs were, he was not going to go beyond or against what his father had said. And so verse 4 says, and Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Here Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3, which says that God's purpose for Israel's hunger in the wilderness was to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus said it this way in another place in scripture, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, we obey God rather than our intense hunger. We obey God rather than our feelings. We obey God rather than our physical appetites and fleshly desires, no matter how legitimate they may be. Trusting and obeying our Father is more satisfying than any other temporal, fleeting satisfaction we may get apart from Him. In this instance, the Father had not yet willed to provide food for His Son. So Jesus chose to trust God at his word no matter what, no matter how hungry he was, no matter how legitimate his need was. He was going to live more fundamentally on God's word rather than on bread. You know, for us, we may not be tempted to command stones to become bread, but we're often tempted by whatever we're intensely hungry for. So what are you hungry for? It might be things like food or sex, approval, comfort, control, security, power, status, or something else. What are you hungry for? They may be legitimate needs like food, or they may be illegitimate addictions like pornography. But in every case, we're tempted to try to take for ourselves what God has not commanded, in some cases even prohibited. We start agreeing with the devil's logic. Surely, I'm a child of God. And surely, a child of God shouldn't be so intensely hungry like this. Therefore, I should satisfy my fleshly desires and needs, even if that means going beyond or even against what God's word says. We start engaging in what one person calls sanctified deception or acceptable lying where we start lying to ourselves and other people, trying to convince ourselves that our sin is somehow justified, no matter how clearly sinful it is, because we're so convinced that God clearly wants the end result for us, and so we use the ends to justify our means. Perhaps you're so convinced that God wants you to be married, that you'll go to great lengths to deceive yourself and others to marry someone that you're actually, you actually have very little confidence as a Christian which clearly goes against God's word to marry someone only in the Lord. Perhaps you're so convinced that God wants you to satisfy your sexual, de- your sexual desires, your urges, not to repress them. And you'll go to great lengths to deceive yourselves and others into thinking that it's okay to engage in pornography, which clearly goes against God's word that says that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in, her heart, in his heart. Perhaps you're so convinced that God wants you to be successful at work, at least successful in the way that you define it or the way that the world defines it. And then you'll go to great lengths to deceive yourself and others into thinking that it's okay to be so busy with work that you neglect gathering together with God's people, which clearly goes against God's word that says that we are not to neglect meeting together, but to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. No, we are not mere animals that give in to our bodily urges. Only beasts are controlled by their fleshly hungers. The more we fix our eyes downward on the things of this world, the more we will resemble the beasts of this world. But the more we fix our eyes upward on the things of heaven and the world to come, the more we will resemble who we truly are, children made in the image of God. As followers of Christ, It's precisely because we are children of God with the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus that we should rise above our intense fleshly hungers to satisfy ourselves 
And instead, like Christ, we should find true satisfaction in trusting and obeying God at his word. That is who we are. We are not just beasts. We are children of God, and we should act in in accordance with that. Now, that's one of the reasons that we regularly practice fasting. In one sense, fasting is saying, I hunger for God more than I hunger for food or social media or whatever you're fasting from. I will not be overrun by the need to satisfy my intense fleshly hungers. But more than anything, I find my satisfaction in God alone, in his word, in his presence, in living according to his will. And I hope that's what many of us experience during the One Desire Fast these last two weeks. And hopefully fasting continues to be part of our regular lives so that we do not become slaves to our intense hungers, but live as we truly are in Christ, sons and daughters of God. So first, fleshly hunger. And the second test is crossless glory. Crossless glory. Verses 5 to 7 say this. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. You know, here it seems that the devil gave Jesus a vision in a moment of time of all the kingdoms of the world and promised to give him all their authority and glory under one condition, if Jesus would only worship him. In a sense, this is the same promise that the father has already promised his son. Listen to God's word in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 to 8. It says this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So here, the son speaks of the decree that the father has promised him. All the nations to the ends of the earth shall be his possession. In other words, Jesus knows that all the kingdoms of the world will be his. The Father has decreed it. It's as good as done. So what's so special about Satan's offer here then? If God already said he's going to do it, what's Satan's real offer here? You know, if we skip to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, after his death and resurrection, we find Jesus affirming that he has indeed received what the Father promised him. As the foundation for the Great Commission that many of us are familiar with, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he says, go and make disciples of all nations. But notice, everything that needed to take place in between the Father's decree of the Son possessing the nations and Jesus' statement that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Something had to come in between that. And if we keep reading through the Gospels, it wasn't pleasant. Jesus knows that there is only one path that the Father has willed for him to walk. There's only one way to get to that place of authority and glory over all nations. And that's the path of suffering, humiliation, and ultimately death on a cross. But Satan is essentially saying, there's no need for any of that. There's no need to go through all that suffering and humiliation and death. I'll give you all the authority and glory of the kingdoms of the world right now without a cross. No pain, no tears, no death. I will give it to you graciously, if only you would worship me. That's the deal. No cross. Crossless glory. You know, on the surface, it seems like Satan is giving Jesus a better offer than his father has given to him. The father decrees to give the son all authority and glory through the cross. But Satan is offering to give him all authority and glory without a cross. There would be no cry of agony on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But instead, there would be instant exaltation to the throne of all the kingdoms of the world if only he would bow before Satan. Now ask yourself, which would you choose? The way of the cross and then future glory or instant glory without a cross? Before you think about answering that, we need to remember 
that Satan is the father of lies and the deceiver of the whole world, but he disguises himself as an angel of light. In other words, Satan is very, very, very good at making lies seem good and plausible. It's true that the Bible calls Satan the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and even the god of this world. But if we begin to examine what he says here a little bit more closely, things begin to unravel. He says that all this authority and their glory has been delivered to me. He doesn't say that they're mine, but he says it passively, that they've been delivered to me, which essentially means that God has delivered them to me. God is the ultimate sovereign, and from him and through him and to him are all things. Satan may have a limited limited rule in this world that's bound by God's allowance, but make no mistake, God sovereignly rules over all his creation, and he ultimately decides who to give the authority and glory of the nations to. It is not Satan who gives the nations to whom he wills, but God alone gives and takes away as he wills. Now, another question to consider is this. Why in the world would Satan offer this deal to Jesus? Is he just a benevolent guy, kind and gracious? Why would he offer this deal? The Bible says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus said that he came to bind the strong man and plunder his house. In other words, by Jesus coming to establish the kingdom of God, he was essentially toppling, taking over Satan's reign over the earth. So Satan basically tries to offer a a gentleman's agreement. We don't need to go through all this needless war with one another. You don't need to destroy, bind, and plunder my rule over the nations. I will freely give it to you. All I ask is that you worship me. Surely, That's better than suffering and dying. You know, if Jesus had given in to this temptation, this would have been disastrous for our salvation. As our representative substitute, Jesus had to suffer and die to bear the wrath of God for our sins. Without his suffering and death, there would be no forgiveness of sins. If there were no cross, there would be no salvation for sinners like us. But even before that, by worshiping Satan, even for just a moment, Jesus would have become another sinner in need of saving. His rule would not have been eternal, but he would have only had another temporal kingdom of this world that God himself would have toppled and given to another. In essence, he would have just been another fallen Adam, another fallen Israel, another fallen son of God who would have been tested and proven unfaithful. Thankfully, that's not how Jesus responds. Verse 8 says this, And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Here Jesus appeals to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. But if we continue reading the very next verse in that passage that he alludes to, it says in verses 14 and 15 this, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. In other words, there are dire, fatal consequences to worshiping other counterfeit gods. Satan will gladly promise you anything you want if he knows that it will destroy you in the end. And that was the hook in Satan's offer that Jesus saw. Jesus knew that worshiping anyone, anything, besides the one true God equals death. What good are all the kingdoms of the earth if you are destroyed from off the face of the earth? Or as Jesus said elsewhere, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's worthless. Satan will gladly give you a painless and pleasurable life in order to destroy you eternally. He will give you everything you want 
if it will destroy you. But Jesus chose the path of suffering and humiliation and death on the cross in order to give us what we really need, to give us life eternally. There was no other way. There were no compromises in the faithful Son of God, but he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That was his Father's will, and there would be no shortcuts. Humiliation comes before exaltation. The cross comes before the crown. No other way. And the same is true for us even now. Suffering and death come before our resurrection and glory. There is no easy path to follow Christ. But our Lord and Savior said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So now, by the mercies of God, we present our bodies as living sacrifices. We offer our bodies holy and pleasing to God as our spiritual worship. God, I give you my whole life, no matter what comes, no matter what suffering that entails, my whole life is yours. Because you're worth it. And I know this life is not all there is. You know, if you're a follower of Christ, then scripture says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, don't be surprised when you experience suffering. But know that in Christ, suffering always leads to glory. If you're a follower of Christ, comfort and ease should not be your baseline expectation for this life. Rather, throughout Scripture, Jesus and his followers suffer. And they all tell us that we will also suffer if we follow Christ. It's not ambiguous about it. So suffering and persecution should be our baseline expectation for this life. If we don't expect sufferings and frustrations in this life, we will get frustrated and disappointed and disillusioned when God allows us sovereignly to suffer. Remember, God did not promise a cross-free life. That was Satan. Let me just say that again. God did not promise a cross-free life. That was Satan. As long as we think that suffering is abnormal in this life, we'll be tempted to see suffering as a sign of God's absence and lack of care for us. But ironically, the exact opposite is true. Suffering, sin, and death are the very reasons that Christ came into this world to free us from the bondage of suffering, sin, and death in this life so that would not be our end and to give us hope of glory in the life to come without their presence any longer. That's why Jesus came and that's why he didn't give in to Satan's temptation here. He was committed to go to the cross so that destruction from the face of the earth would not be our end but eternal life with him in the new heavens and new earth would be ours forever. Scripture says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And similarly, for us, if we want to learn to suffer well, we need to think regularly about the joy set before us, about the eternal hope of glory with Christ. You read the New Testament, it talks about it all the time. You read the Old Testament, it talks about it all the time. But unfortunately, so many of us, we don't think about life beyond this life. We're wanderers in this life, going in circles, thinking that it's going to get us somewhere. We're not wanderers, we're pilgrims. Our suffering is not meaninglessly wandering in, in circles. Our suffering leads somewhere to glory. So we should think about that future more and more. You know, a practice that I started recently is that as I lay in bed, about to sleep at night. You know, I don't know about you, but these days I've been having like these concerns, these worries, these stressors. So a practice that I started doing is I remind myself of the heavenly realities that are more true than anything else that I'm going through right now. 
I think about being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms right now. I think about being among the great heavenly assembly with people from every nation, tribe, people, language, worshiping our God. I think about the great feast that is to come where all the good things of this world right now are just mere appetizers. I think about seeing my Lord and Savior face to face. Now completely satisfied, I'll be in his presence. No more tears, no more sin, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more struggle. But I'll be glorified with my Lord and Savior. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You know, if that is on the other side of this life, I will gladly take up my cross and follow Jesus there. You know, if you're not a follower of Christ, just know that there's no other ideology in the world that has a cross-bearing Lord and Savior at at its center. Every other ideology inevitably comes down to what you must do to make yourself better in order to earn what nobody else will freely give to you. But Christ on the cross does for us what we could never do for ourselves in order to give us what we could never earn ourselves. The cross shows us what our sins deserve, death. And the cross shows us the extent of God's love for sinners like us, the death of his son. At the cross, there are no conceptual sins or conceptual love, but we see our personal sins that deserve death. And we see our personal savior, who died in our place. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's incredibly humbling. But if we're honest with ourselves, and if we're tired of struggling to no end, Christ is our rest and refuge. Christ lived the perfect life that we could not live. And he died the death that we deserve for our sins. So that if we repent of our sins and believe in him, we can be forgiven our sins and be assured that our sufferings in this life do not compare to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. If you're not a follower of Christ, but you're ready to trust him today as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would do that. And please tell someone afterwards. We'd love to help you confirm your faith and guide you uh, in taking some next steps in following him. So first, fleshly hunger. Second, crossless glory. And now the third test is faithless testing. Faithless testing. Verses 9 to 11 say this. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So here Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle, the highest point of the temple, and tempts him to jump. But for the first time, Satan gives biblical reasoning for it. Jesus has responded to Satan's temptations twice now by saying authoritatively, it is written, and then quoting scripture. So now Satan follows the same pattern, He says authoritatively, it is written, and begins quoting Psalm 91, which has been called one of the boldest expressions of confidence in the scriptures. So essentially, Satan sets up this temptation so that it looks like Jesus lacks faith in God's word if he doesn't take this, quote, step of faith. The logic goes like this. If you have so much faith in God's word, and this is what God's word says, then show your great faith in his word. If God says that he will command his angels to guard you and bear you up so that your foot won't hit the ground, then exercise your faith in his word by throwing yourself down from the top of the temple. Wow. There's so much to note here. I hope you just feel like, I don't know, like creeped out. First, just note how clever and manipulative Satan is here. He takes the very thing that Jesus rests in, God's word, and begins to use it as the very foundation for his temptation. 
And not only that, he makes his temptation seem like a great act of faith rather than for what it really is, a great act of faithlessness. We'll look more closely at that in a bit, but for now, I just want us to notice that Satan is no fool. He discerns our ways and he uses them against us. He's not a novice, he's not a newbie at tempting people. It's a craft that he's mastered over millennia. Satan is very, very, very good at tempting people to sin. And we should note that. Second, note that no matter how clever and manipulative Satan is in his temptation, he cannot make us sin. That is always our own choice. Satan cannot make Jesus decide to throw himself down, but he can only suggest, tempt him, throw yourself down. That means that nobody can ever excuse their own sin by saying, the devil made me do it. And how much less can we try to excuse our own sin by saying, that person made me do it. My situation made me do it. You know who else said that? Adam and Eve in the garden. It doesn't work. Even though all those may have been contributing factors, at the end of the day, each person decides and chooses to sin against God. Don't ever expect to stand before God one day and think that it's going to be understandable or acceptable to say to God to his face, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't me. It was the devil. It was that person. It was my situation. No judge on earth would ever accept such a plea. Neither will the judge of all the earth accept that. Third, note that Satan knows God's word quite well. And he has no problem providing a biblical foundation for his temptations. You want him to show you how his, his thoughts are biblical? He's got no problem to show you how it's biblical. He knows it well enough to quote it, and he knows it well enough to intentionally quote it out of context to try to manipulate someone to do what they should not do. Psalm 91 is, in fact, a psalm of confidence, one of the greatest psalms of confidence. But it's in the context of God bringing judgment on the wicked. That's the context. And how God will protect those who find refuge in him from experiencing his judgment. The psalm is not saying that no harm will ever come upon God's people. The book of Psalms was compiled after Israel's exile, so they knew firsthand the harm that even God's faithful remnant experienced in the exile. So Satan took a psalm of confidence, took it out of context to make it say what it was not saying, and used it as the biblical foundation to tempt Jesus to sin. But not only did Satan take the psalm out of context, but he also chose to omit verses that he didn't like. He quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, but the very next verse that Satan omits is verse 13, which says, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Satan came as the serpent in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve to sin. And Jesus alludes to this very verse later in his ministry to refer to trampling over Satan and all the power of the enemy. So Satan conveniently omits this part of scripture that he obviously doesn't like. Now I want us to be honest with ourselves for a moment. What does your use of scripture look like? Does it look like how the devil uses it? Where we take verses out of context and use it to say what we wanted to say? To justify our actions so we make some sort of biblical foundation for it? Where we take the verses that we like and we omit the verses that we don't like? Or do we take God at his word in its right context and we, we use it as we ought? You know, we're often tempted to use God's word the way the devil does. But fortunately, that's not how Jesus used it. How did Jesus respond to Satan's third temptation? Verse 12 says this, And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. But the whole quotation says this, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So what happened at Massa? How did Israel test God there? Well, the Israelites were 
thirsty in the wilderness and grumbled against Moses saying, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so God has Moses strike a rock so that water would come out of it. And the end of that narrative says this in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. And he called the name of that place Masa or Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, uh, of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? No, clearly, we can see that the Israelites in the wilderness were not a model of great faith. They accused Moses and thus accused God by implication of bringing them out into the wilderness, rescuing them from slavery to kill them, to kill their children and to kill their livestock with thirst. And they essentially give God an ultimatum by saying, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, prove it. This is the heart that looks to God and says, prove it. As if delivery, deliverance from slavery in the Red Sea was not enough. They keep saying, are you among us or not? Prove it. God graciously condescends to miraculously provide water for them from a rock. But he is not pleased by such an attitude towards him. You know, on the surface, it might seem like what Satan is tempting Jesus with and what Jesus is referring to at Masa don't exactly correlate. Uh, they don't exactly connect. So let me explain a bit more. There are two ways to have this proven attitude towards God. The first way is like the Israelites in the wilderness. They come with doubts and accusations against God, and they demand something from him. You know, perhaps you know what that's like. God, I'm not leaving this spot until you prove to me that you're really there. God, if you really care for me, then make blank happen. God, if you really love me, then why are you not doing blank? No, just imagine a child saying these things to his father. Dad, if you really loved me, then you would do blank. Would you think that that child trusted his father very much? Probably not. That's not an attitude of trust. Now, the second way of this, having this proven attitude is like Satan trying to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. If you have so much faith, then put your money where your mouth is. Put yourself in danger to show how much faith you have. You know, just imagine a child saying to his father, Dad, when you say that you love me and will protect me, I really believe you. And to show you how much I believe you, I'm going to allow myself to get kidnapped because I really believe that you'll do everything possible to rescue me because you love me. You know, just hearing that sounds insane. That's no, that's foolish, ludicrous, crazy. No father would ever feel honored by such faith in him. But you see, both situations are really two sides of the same coin. They both look at the father and essentially say, prove it. The first has doubts and says, prove it. The second has supposed confidence, but it's really faithlessness masked as confidence and says, prove it. They both try to force the father to do something on their own terms rather than waiting on God's terms and trusting in him. You know, though the situations may look different, the hearts of such children beat the same refrain. Your word is not enough for me. And again, Satan sets up this temptation so that it looks like Jesus lacks faith in God's word if he doesn't take this step of faith. But Jesus sets the record straight. No, the one who foolishly puts himself in danger to force God's hand is not the one who has great faith. Such a person lacks faith to trust God at his word. Rather, the one who believes God at his word without any need to test God is the one who really has great faith. You know, later in his ministry, Jesus encounters a Roman centurion whose servant was deathly sick at home. But before Jesus even comes to his house, the Roman centurion says, Stop, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled saying, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. All we should need is, God, say the word. 
or you've said it in your word. As believers in Jesus Christ, we don't hold fast to signs and wonders. We don't hold fast to our fickle feelings or to our situations. We don't demand that God prove his love and care for us. We don't try to force his hand by putting him to the test on our our own terms. No, we hold fast to God's word and we trust God at his word, rightly understood in its context. You know, if the heart of a faithless child sings, your word is not enough for me, then the heart of a faithful child of God sings, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Or as Jesus said later to his disciples after his resurrection, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus didn't need any additional proof from the Father that he was the Son of God. The Father had already said as much in his baptism, and that was all that he needed. So he did not put the Father to the test, and again, he overcame Satan's temptation. Verse 13 then concludes, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now keep in mind that the devil didn't just tempt Jesus these three times. Verse 2 makes, clear, makes it clear that Jesus was being tempted by the devil throughout his entire 40 days in the wilderness. It's just that all these temptations culminated in these last three. But after throwing every temptation at Jesus, the devil could not succeed in tempting him to sin. So he departed from him until an opportune time. You know, that doesn't mean that Satan left him alone until the cross. He never leaves us alone. Jesus would continue to clash with Satan and his demonic influence in more trials and temptations throughout his public ministry. But at least here, after going toe-to-toe with the Son of God for 40 days in the wilderness, the devil admits defeat and calls it quits. So where Adam and Israel had failed, Jesus, the true Son of God, succeeded. Here, before the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus overcame Satan and sin. But this was just a preparatory taste of what was to come throughout the rest of his ministry. This was the beginning of his testing and temptation. Jesus would continue to face more trials and temptations. But like he did in the wilderness, he would continue to overcome Satan, sin, and eventually he would even overcome death itself. So again, who can we turn to amidst our personal trials and temptations? Who has been tested and proven to be able to help us in our time of need? There is only one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet remained without sin. And that's Jesus Christ, the faithful Son of God. Now let's get into the life application. But as we talk about application, I want to be clear that this text is primarily about Jesus succeeding where we all fail. So we must first and foremost trust in his active obedience in our place as a Son of God and not trusting in our own obedience. But secondarily, we can imitate him as adopted children of God in Christ, acting in the same power of the Spirit that enabled him to remain faithful. So note that the life applications that I'll I'll share here are really the secondary imitation of Christ to live a life that's holy and pleasing to God. And though all these applications are individual, keep in mind, especially in light of our rallying cry this quarter, that they can just as easily be corporate, where we do them together as brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, Jesus was tested and tempted alone in the wilderness, but he's given us himself and fellow brothers and sisters so that we would never be truly alone in all of our personal trials and temptations. So keep that in mind as I share this. So the first life application is this. Fast one day a week or month to hunger for God more than fleshly hungers. You know, we just finished our annual One Desire Fast, so I'm not sure how many of us are thinking about fasting again. But let me just say, let's not just fast once a year. Fasting one day a week or a month, they're just suggestions, but choose some rhythm of regularity. You know, fasting is a spiritual habit that we're meant to instill as a regular part of our lives, as a way to say with not only our words, but with our actions, I will not be overrun by the need to satisfy my intense fleshly hungers. But more than anything, I find my satisfaction in God alone, in his word, in his presence, in living according to his will. Again, it doesn't have to even be from food. Maybe the social media fast is really good for you. Maybe you need to fast from your phone and you just airplane it and put it in a different room for a day and see what, what you feel and what comes out of you during that time. You know, the leaders in our church fast every Thursday to pray specifically for our church. So we invite and you're welcome to join us in that each week as well. 
Second life application is think regularly about our eternal hope of glory with Christ beyond this temporal life of suffering. You know, if you want to learn to suffer well, fix your eyes on Christ. Not only does he model how to suffer well, but he leads us in our suffering. In Christ, we know that suffering and death are not the end, but resurrection, glory, eternal life with him, and the new heavens and new earth are ours forever. So let's think regularly about that eternal hope that we have and see that nothing in this world can compare to what awaits us. You know, all earthly sufferings and all earthly pleasures are put into perspective as they all fade in the background and give way to our eternal hope of glory in Christ. Third, read through a daily Bible reading plan to better understand God's word. You know, in every instance here of testing and temptation, Jesus does not try to reason with his own reason. He does not try to get into an argument with Satan. Rather, he simply says, it is written, and holds fast to God's word tighter than anything else in this world. And when Satan tries to deceive him with scripture, he knows God's word well enough to not be deceived. He rightfully wields God's word, and he stands on that foundation. Now, for us, there are no shortcuts to get familiar with God's word and to better understand it. We need to read it, study it, meditate on it over our entire lifetime. And a daily Bible reading plan is a one of the best ways to do that. Of course, that's not all that we do. You know, we hear God's word preached. We we study God's word in life groups. But one thing that nobody can do for you is read God's word for you. That's something only that you can commit to doing. And as the psalmist says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So as a church, Now let's imitate Christ together, but first and foremost, let's trust him as the one who has been tested and proven to save us from our sin and the one who leads us now to overcome every personal trial and temptation. So once again, the one thing is trust in the tested and proven son of God amidst personal trials and temptations. Can we all stand as we respond to God's word together?